we've been talking about the uh, grace of God and uh, knowing grace, what grace is, and so forth. And we began to look at some of the things that can be obstacles to God's grace in our life. There, there are obstacles. There are things that can inhibit uh, one our knowledge, or, or certainly the uh, the uh, opportunity for us to benefit by God's grace working in our life. And last week we began to talk about certain habits, certain heart attitudes and habits that we develop and that are, that are internal to us that act as obstacles to His grace. We need His grace. Would you agree? Yes. I, I am convinced that we don't really understand the depth of our legalism. We don't understand the depth of our pride. We don't understand the depth of sin in our humanness. And uh, this is one opportunity where we can begin to see it, and as we begin to think on these things, we begin to see, boy, it really is deep in me. (laughs) I'm not what I thought I was, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. Amen? So as we look this morning, we're going to look at uh, legalistic attitudes and habits that are conveyed in the home, legalism in the home. And then, Lord willing, next week we're going to look at legalism in the church and how these things really do uh, inhibit us from embracing, knowing, and benefiting by the grace of God. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, let's go right back to the beginning. It's important, I think, for us to start at the beginning and understand some fundamental things, or at least certainly to rehearse them. In verse 26 of chapter 1, this is the day of creation. This is the day in which God makes man. The the whole universe is in place. All the heavens, all the stars, all the solar systems, all of the nebula, everything that is in existence is in existence. And now God's going to add the crowning jewel on his creation. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That man is the crowning jewel? We're the, we're, the, we're the cherry on top of the sundae, if you will. Finishes it off. It's on this day that uh, God says, let us, the plural pronoun refers to the Trinity, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, nowhere else in the whole creative narrative do we find any other aspect of creation as being described as being made in the image of God. Only man. Man is unique. Man is distinct from every aspect of creation. We are not the product of blind chance in billions of years. We are not the product of some evolutionary uh, process or which we... We kind of evolved out of birds or or animals or amoeba or fungus or... I mean, there's any number of theories about how man got here. No, the Bible says very clearly that God created us, and he created us uniquely in his image. The question is, what does that mean, to be made in his image, in his likeness? And then why? Well, to be made in God's image very simply means that God has made us and created us in such a way that we correspond to him. He's communicated to us in our nature now certain qualities that enable us to respond back to him. God is a personal being, isn't he? God is not some impersonal force that you plug into in the universe. Get your batteries plugged, unplug, and then go, right? No, God's a personal being. He has personality. He is a person. God's a rational being. He has rationality. He is a being that has the capacity to choose. He chooses. And he is a being that experiences and expresses emotion. Those four qualities he's communicated to us. We are personal beings. We are rational beings. We are volitional or choosing beings. We have the capacity to choose. We are indeed emotional beings. We have 
Emotion is a part of our makeup. So God has made us like him, and he's communicated those qualities to us. We're like him. We're not gods, but we're like him in those very, very unique ways. Animals don't have those qualities. Now the question is, why did he make us like him? So we could relate to him. So we could have a relationship with him. God simply wanted kids, if I can put it that way. He wanted us to enjoy him. If you, if you recall back, if any of you were raised with the catechetical questions, you know, why did God make us to enjoy him, right, forever? He made us for relationship. A personal being has the capacity to know and to be known. A personal being has a longing to know and to be known. Now, you may want, you know, you have these seasons in your life where you don't want to be around anybody, right? <laughs> Leave me alone. I just want to be alone. But you can't do that very long because there's something that draws you back, the very need for relationship. Because we were designed for that. We were made for that. We were made for relationship with God first. We were made for relationship with each other. And hence, those two great commandments, love God with your whole heart and your neighbor as yourself. They reflect the reason for God in making us. Now, having said all that, I want you to look at chapter 3 of Genesis. So God created man. He created man for relationship. He created him perfectly. Imagine what it would be like to be a perfect person. No flaws in your personality. Right, Scott? <laughs> we all have a few. We all have our little, our little quirks, right? We're all, we all have those little things that make us different from one another. We all have our idiosyncrasies, little chinks in the armor, if you will. Imagine being perfect. Imagine having perfect understanding, perfect knowledge. Imagine having the, the perfect capacity to choose. The words I can't are never in your vocabulary. Imagine having an emotional life that's not all over the map. I mean, we love our emotions, and we hate them at the same time. can't stand them when people get emotional. Oh, don't get emotional over this. Imagine being perfect. Well, God made us perfect. No flaws. And then the narrative takes us to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is called, basically we see what's known as the fall of man. It just simply says the man falls from a state of perfection to a state of imperfection. We're no longer perfect. We are flawed beings now because of what goes on in chapter 3. And indeed, by extension, when, when people question you about, you know, why is there evil in the world, you take them right back to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. You say, this is why there's evil in the world. They may not want to agree with it, but this is the reason why there's evil in the world, as the biblical record tells us. And Paul reaffirms that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says that sin entered in through one man. Sin entered into the world. It entered into our relationships. And when sin entered in, it brought its buddy death. And that way, he says, death came to all men because all sinned. In Adam, we all sinned. So now we are imperfect, and this is the reason. This is why people can't get along because of chapter 3 and because of the decision that Adam made and that we all made in Adam. Someone said to me one time, well, gosh, if I, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> See, what makes, what makes Adam's fall so tragic is that he had perfect knowledge. He had every, every possible resource available to him. That's what makes his fall so tragic. At least, at least we would say, you know, well, I'm not perfect tonight, but he was perfect. Have you ever done something you knew you shouldn't have done? And you knew full well going into doing it you shouldn't do this? 
even with fallible knowledge, right? I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm doing it anyway. And it leads to destruction of some kind. So in chapter 3, we see this. Now look with me. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, didn't this imagine a snake having conversation with a woman? She has a conversation. <laughs> he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent says, no, 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 you're not going to die. Nothing's going to happen to you. You see, God's holding out on you. He knows that when you eat of it that day, your eyes will be open. You'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Cool, that's exactly what I do. I want to know evil. Makes it sound appealing, huh? You'll have knowledge. You won't need to remain dependent on him. You can go and do your own thing now. You'll be like him. But doesn't that sound appealing? Be independent. Have it your way. Do your own thing. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, there's a good reason to eat it. It's desirable also, or uh, pleasing to the eye. There's another good reason. And then desirable for gaining wisdom, so she thought. She begins to tell herself three lies, three rational lies. Have you ever rationalized doing something? I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to find some reasons to go do it so I can rationalize it. That's exactly what she does. So she's talked herself into it. She's allowed the serpent to deceive her and to entice her, and she adds her reasons, and she goes and, look what it says, and then she took some of the fruit, and she ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, who said, yes, dear. <laughs> and he ate it. Now, there's a lot more to read between the lines. I'm just kind of setting the stage because I want to get to verse 7. Now, look, at here's what happens. God had told the man when he, when he created him, and over in chapter 2, he says, this, this tree, this big tree in the middle, you're free to eat from all the trees in the garden, but this one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat from, for in the day you eat of it is the day you die. The day you'll experience Separation. Separation from me, separation from yourself, separation from your neighbor, separation from your environment. So God had already given them instruction. The woman knew something about that. They knew not to eat of that tree. But as soon as they did, look at immediately, immediately, verse 7 says, then... The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked and they sewed leaves together to make coverings for themselves. Now you contrast verse 7 with verse 25 of chapter 2. Look at the last verse of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both, what? Naked and they felt no shame. The idea is, there, is there, they were completely open, completely transparent. They had nothing to hide. There, there was no, nothing to make up. There were no justifications, no need to wear a mask, no need to do a dance, no need to pretend. They were naked and unashamed. And as soon as they ate that fruit, as soon as they disobeyed, as soon as they quit trusting God, you see the fall. Sin enters in. Their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They're ashamed. And they've got to cover up. And beloved, we've been covering up ever since, haven't we? We've been hiding ever since. We've been doing our dances ever since. We've been wearing our masks, putting up our walls, however you want to say it. Verse 8, and then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine walking and talking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, having perfect, unhindered fellowship? Would you, how, how many have difficulty with their prayer life? Unhindered. No distractions, no problems, just sweet communion with God. 
No, I, I don't know about you, but my prayer life, man, I've got to work hard at keeping focused. I use every trick in the book that I've learned over the years to stay focused. Because this flesh wants to go this way. Can you imagine having unhindered fellowship with God? Can you imagine walking through the garden and God saying, now see this one, see, the, see that animal? Let me tell you about that animal. Let me tell you why I created that animal. Wow, cool. Let me tell you about this over here. Let me explain this to you. Let me tell you. Can you imagine? Can you, you can't exhaust the mind of God. And just being in his presence, in his grace, in his love, just enveloping you and being able to perfectly enjoy it. Wow. I can hardly wait for heaven. So then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they ran out to God, and they said, God, God, we blew it. No? What does it say? They hid. Boy, is that telling? They hid. They jumped in the bushes and they're hiding out as if God didn't know where they were. I mean, is that irrational? Oh, I want to hide from God. He can't see us. Now notice this. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the... I want to hear all the men say that. The Lord God called to the... Man. One more time. The Lord God called to the... Man. Come on, all guys, you didn't say it. <laughs> Underline that. Called to the man. He didn't call to the woman. He called to the man. Yoo-hoo! <laughs> where are you? You suppose that God didn't know where they were? No, he knew exactly where they were. He's, he's, he's saying, come on, come on out. Come on out, fess up. Don't we say that? Where are you? What's going on with you? And we all know what's going on, but you've got to admit it, right? You're still hiding. You're still hiding. You see, what I'm going to suggest to you is that behind the fall here, behind the fall of man, lies our legalism. Behind legalism is the sin problem. Why are we legalistic? And we're all legalistic. We are all legalistic. We just don't know how legalistic we are. I mean, it it goes to the core. You can say this is like the battle between the flesh and the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You can say this is like Romans chapter 7 in a sense. It goes to the very core. You can be the nicest, sweetest Christian on the outside but down deep inside, all of us are legals, legalistic. That's just, that's just part of what sin has done to us. That's the reality. This is part of our, of our struggle and our battle with the flesh. See, now, now man is operating in a deficit position. We're operating from a deficit. We're no longer perfect. We're flawed. We're flawed in every aspect of our nature. There's a hole in us in every one of those qualities that God communicated to us. We are personally weak. We are rationally weak. We are volitionally weak. We are emotionally weak. Damaged. We're guilty. There's no doubt about it. We are guilty. And we fall short. We fall short of everything we do. We set the greatest goals. We plan. We think, all right, today I'm going to get it together. Today I'm going to live my life. Today I'm going to honor God. And you're not out of the house two minutes and you've already blown it. <laughs> We're guilty. We fall short. We are fearful. Look at this. Look, look back at our passage of chapter 3. 
When God calls to the man, he wants to know where he is. The man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. We're fearful. One of our great problems is that fear, fear, we're all, we're all afraid. You know what we're afraid of? Fundamentally, being found out. We're being afraid of, we're afraid of being found out. We're afraid, let me, let me translate it, let me put it this way. We're afraid that we, we don't measure up and we won't be acceptable. That is probably our greatest longing, besides longing for food and water and those other human needs, is, is the need to be accepted. We will do everything. We will do everything we can possibly do to be accepted or to avoid not being accepted. I mean, we jump through hoops, we please people, we beat ourselves up when we don't, because what? What rests on it? Our acceptance. See, that just shows you how deep our legalism goes. We're striving, how, how, how that deficit has so impacted our life. We're always trying to prove ourselves. We're always trying to improve ourselves. Would you agree? Because we're so aware of where we are. And even then, we don't even really know where we are. We just know that I just, I've got to get better. I've got to improve. I've got to improve. And if I'm not improving, then I've got to prove myself. I've got to defend myself. I've got to justify myself. It's a constant battle. Some days you don't even want to get out of bed in the morning because you know you've got to defend yourself and justify yourself. Because someone's going to judge you. And quite frankly, that particular day, I just don't feel like being judged. <laughs> so I'm going to stay in bed today. Am I the only one? Now, because of these limitations that come from the fall, because of these inherent limitations that we have now, I suggested to you last week that we, we learn, we, we develop certain strategies. We develop certain attitudes. We develop certain habits to prove ourselves, to improve ourselves, to justify ourselves. And these attitudes are, are not based in the Word of God. They're based, very simply, on what we think and what we've been told and what we've been taught apart from the Word, in spite of the Word in many cases. And these attitudes and these habits are deeply seated in our life. They reside down deep inside of us. We don't even know how deep pride goes, do we? No. I mean, we'd like to think of ourselves, well, I'm, like Steve said, you know, I'm humble <laughs> in the video. I wish I could be as humble as Steve. But these attitudes are so deep-seated, and they rise up. And they rise up. And they surface, and they assert themselves. And when they assert themselves, they destroy relationship. They destroy relationship. The very thing we long for. If I can summarize and just make one, one blanket statement that will summarize all of this. These attitudes that we develop, this motivation that we have can be summarized by this statement. I can only feel good about myself if I've performed well. I can only feel good about myself if I've performed well. I can only feel good about others if they perform well. Right? If I don't perform well, I'm miserable. I hate myself. Other people don't like me. God can only feel good about me if I perform well. Now it's real deadly. Now it's real deadly. Bad enough that I put myself under that. And that, that is very natural. That's very natural for us to do that. But God wants to redeem us from that. From this performance mentality in order to be acceptable Am I making sense? Are you, are you tracking with me okay? 
Whenever things don't go well, whenever people aren't nice to us, whenever we fail, what rises up in us typically, generally? All manner of things, don't they? Sometimes we kind of just get angry. Maybe we rebel. Maybe we fail and someone else succeeds and we get jealous of them rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice. Maybe we get critical because we can't be what, what somebody else is and we're always comparing ourselves. What's motivating me? It's this void. It's this deficit to fill this deficit. That's what's motivating me. And I've come up with these, all these strategies on my own internally to try to meet that need but they all end up into destructive kinds of attitudes and habits and behaviors. I get moody. I don't know why I'm moody. I'm just moody. I just don't feel good today. I'm not having a good day. I'm having a bad hair day. Well, we know it's not the hair. It's just I just don't feel good about myself. Why? Because I've set certain standards, and I'm not meeting the standards, and my acceptance depends upon that. I can't accept myself, and others are going to judge me and be critical. It's just it's too painful for me. And then if I extend that to God, which I surely do, if I'm not performing, if I'm not reading my Bible, if I'm not praying, if I'm not doing good works, if I'm not going to many church, if I'm not doing all my stuff that I'm supposed to be doing, right? how can God possibly... Be pleased with me. Do we do that? Do we do that? On, 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 and not just on occasional things. One, I mean, fairly regularly, don't we? You see how deep-seated these habits and attitudes are? These strategies? When those things occur, when, we, when these things begin to surface, it's a signal to us. It's a signal to us, if we could just remember this. Oh, I've just lost sight of the God of grace, and I've just lost sight of the grace of God. Every time those things rise up. Up! My focus has shifted. My fo- I've got to get my focus back. And that's a battle, isn't it? I just wish you could just kind of cruise through life and praising God and everything's wonderful. Do we? Can we? No, we're limited. And when these emotions, when these attitudes, when these habits begin to surface again in response to things that happen to me, real or perceived, it's a signal to me. I've lost sight of the God of grace and the grace of God. If God is for me, who can be against me? And then we have to contend with certainly our view of God. Some of us have a twisted view of God, don't we? Some of us have a legalistic God. Some of us have a God that's like a traffic cop or he's the, he's the old record keeper marking down everything. We cringe every time. Oh, there it goes next to my name. Oh, I know he's writing that one down. Or he's like the domineering parent or the Supreme nagger of the universe. Maybe your God is one who uses grace as a weapon in your life to extort obedience from you, reminding you of what he's done for you. I, look what I did for you. Get with it. Maybe your God is one who maybe has justified you by grace, but sanctifies you through works. Brings you into the family, but then your whole Christian existence is just, oh man, laborious. No joy. Maybe your God is a God who's, who demands perfection from you as a prerequisite for acceptance. You can never, never feel his favor unless you're really on top of your game, pleasing him. Well, how do we deal with these things? How do we deal with these legalistic heart habits? How do we deal with these views of God that are so natural to us sometimes? 
Well, we just step back and we say, well, I'm glad I know that now. I am not going to be a legalist anymore. <laughs> now I know what the problem is, and I'm just not going to be a legalist. There you go. Solved it. Ha. Ha. I suggested you two, suggested to you two things last week, right? How do we deal with legalism in our life? What was the first one? Anybody remember? Improve your concept of God. How do I improve my concept of God? Well, I've got to read his book. But read his book not through just lenses of legalism. Read his book through lenses of grace. Remember Moses? God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. I'm going to be on vacation next month, and when I come back from vacation, we start studying through the Bible, and we are going to go through the Bible, and we're going to go through it at a relatively quicker pace. (laughs) I promise you, I'm going to work very hard. But you know what I want to do is I want to, I want to take us through the Bible, but I want, us, I want us to look at the Bible through lenses of grace. I want us to see God's grace from the first page to the last page. His gracious, gracious, gracious hand. That'd be a great study. So one, we've got to improve our concept of God. Exodus thirty-three eighteen, when Moses said, God, show me your glory. I had a man Friday night after the service come and tell me he, very, he did that very thing this week. He was, his life's really in turmoil and his in a tough situation, and he's, he was doing some wrong things, and he got caught red-handed, and now he's just paying the price. He's repented and trying to get things back together again. And So he said, you know, he said, I, I did what you said. I, I said. He said, I, I, I opened the Bible, but before I did, I said, God, show me your glory. And he said, I just opened it. He said, I don't do this. I, I normally I read systematically, but he just, I just let the Bible fall open, and I did one of these things. Right? Now, we don't recommend that, but in this case, it worked. (laughs) He said, my finger fell on a verse that was just, it spoke right to my life. It was just like the page, the words jumped off the page at me. He said, but you know what? I I said, God, show me your glory. I need something from you. I need you to speak to my heart. I need you to speak to my life. He said he just, he just blew him away. God just spoke to him so powerfully. The second thing that I suggested we do is not just improve our concept of God. The second thing, as I suggested, is we need to continually affirm our trust in God's grace. Continually. Continually God, you do love me. Oh, yes, God, you do love me. And you are at work in me. You are working out. You have promised, Lord, the good work that you've begun to bring it to completion. Lord, okay, I can rest in you. You're gracious to me, Lord. You're not going to beat me up. Even when I fall short, even when I deliberately sin, Lord, you're not going to beat me up. You're not going to hold this against me. Blessed, Lord, your word says, are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin, Lord, you will never count against him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isn't that marvelous? My, I, I can finally experience some peace here with God. I just, I'm at peace with God, and I can have the peace of God, knowing that he's for me. That he loves me. He's covered my sin. He's not going to hold my sin against me. Now I know as I say this, there's some who are going to go, yeah, but, yeah, but. Does that mean that does that give us freedom just to go sin? Can we willfully sin? No. Read Romans chapter six. And we're going to get to that somewhere along the line here. Now, up to this point, we've been dealing with as I said this morning already, we've been dealing with obstacles to grace that are set up because of our own sinful heart habits and our own sinful heart attitudes. Things in us that we develop. But there are other obstacles to grace. Other obstacles that arise from outside of ourselves. And these obstacles come from parents, teachers, 
friends, acquaintances, from the very society in which we live, even from the church. Unfortunately, one of the most powerful sources of non-grace ideas, non-grace attitudes, is the home. Is the home. That's what I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning. Now, what's the job of the parent? How many parents do we have? What's the job of the parent? Now, we have all these parenting classes. We've been teaching these parenting classes in our church for several years now, and many of you have taken you know, any number of the classes. They go from before you have the kids clear up through teenage years and such. What's the job of the parent? Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it? The Bible tells us, if you look at Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, Proverbs says to what? Train a child in the way he or she should go. Train them, train them in the way they should go. So that when they're old, they won't depart from it. In other words, train them in, in good habits. To do that, first of all, you've got to be a student of your child. You have the baby, they don't grow up by themselves. Some parents think they do. You just drag them up. You just feed them, provide a place for them to sleep, and somehow they'll grow up. No, no, no. You've got to be a student of your child. You've got to say, Lord, how have you gifted this child? What, what talents and abilities have How is this child unique from all the other people? Lord, how? Show me so that I can help this child maximize their abilities and skills and talents and train them in the way that they should go, that you have made them so that they can be the person that you have made them to be. And that's just, that's just temporal, natural, human abilities. What about spiritual things? So we train them up not only in, in their human abilities and talents, but we also train them up spiritually. We teach them the law of God in the beginning. We teach them to understand that, that there is a God, and he's a good God, and he has some standards, and, and we teach them that they can't reach those standards. And one day it dawns on them, I can't do this, I can't do this. Now you introduce Jesus and grace. The law is a is a schoolmaster to lead us to Jesus, Paul says in Galatians. So we are to train them up. Secondly, again in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, it's important for the parents to know in training in their child that their child, their children, are foolish. Folly, foolishness. Now notice what he says, is bound up in the heart of the child. I mean, it's in there tightly. It's in there deeply. Foolishness. Our children are foolish. That's their natural tendency to be foolish. And because it is so tightly bound up in there, it's part of the parent's job to train them up to drive out foolishness. Again, a strong term, drive it out. Bound up, drive it out. How do you drive out foolishness? Well, the proverb says, with what? The rod of discipline. Now, rod, there is a time when you use a literal rod. But the idea is with discipline and structure and training. I mean, you're talking about a major investment in a life. Recognize, parents, if I don't take this child's selfishness and foolishness seriously, they're going to grow up to be really selfish and a real fool. And the third, the third part, third job of the parents, third part of the parents' job is you, if you drive out foolishness, now you, in effect, have kind of a little vacuum in there, right? You've got to fill the vacuum. What do you fill the vacuum with? Wisdom. 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 My son and I would read Proverbs every day growing up. Just read them every day. We'd memorize them and talk about them. One day he said, Dad, how come we're, how come we're doing this? I said, because I want you to understand the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom and foolishness. I want you to be a wise man. 
I want you to be a wise person, not a fool. And so we just keep going over them and over them and over them and over them. The difference between wisdom and foolishness. And one day he came to me, he had a decision to make. He said, he said, I've got to make this decision. I listened and he said, what do you think the wise thing would be to do? That's what you tell me. Let's weigh it. Let's, let's examine it. Let's look at the pluses and minuses. What's the wise thing? What's the foolish thing to do? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, Moses, God tells Moses to tell the people to, to teach their kids in every way possible. Teach them the truth. Build in wisdom to them. When you rise up, when you lie down, and you're coming in and you're going out. Every possible way you can think to teach your kids, not just with your words, but with your life, how you live, everything, teach them wisdom. Drive out the foolishness, build in wisdom. And do it in such a manner, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, as not to exasperate them, not to frustrate them, but bring them up. Bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord, the way they should go. Train them up. Now, at best, this is an extremely difficult task to do effectively. And those of you that have more than one, God bless you. (laughs) We only had one, so he had the benefit of both of us, both of us in putting into his life. But for those of you that have more than one or two or three kids, I mean, this is, this is an extremely difficult task to figure out all these different personalities. God, how have you gifted them? How have you trained them? I mean, you can just go, ah! And again, if you don't take seriously that child's selfishness, that child's foolishness, seriously enough, that child will grow up selfish and will grow up very, very foolish. But if you, as a parent, spend too much time battering away at that child's selfishness in fear, because you don't want them to be selfish, you don't want them to be foolish, or if you deal with it in the wrong way, as we're going to talk about in a minute here, especially the legalistic way, which many of us do, then your child will probably rebel. Your child may become a hypocrite or a sneak. That's the worst thing, isn't it? Oh, man. Maybe your child become a, ple- a people pleaser. We talked about a foot dragger, a perfectionist, or may he, he may learn the kind of external goodness that doesn't really come from the heart. We want, the, we want their goodness to come from the heart. Now, as we look at some of these ways that legalism is conveyed in the home, we have to remember that legalism, this is remember, you can't, you can't lose sight of this, you have to remember that legalism is that attitude or that way of dealing with a person, in this particular case our kids, that way of dealing with a person that says in effect, you must earn my kindness, you must earn my acceptance, you must qualify for my love. I will accept you only if you behave properly or if you perform adequately. If you fail, if you fall short, you're not acceptable. And we are very good at communicating that attitude, aren't we? Now, you may not like that, you may not agree with this, but in reality, something of this attitude comes through, beloved, it gets across, and this something infects the life of every child in some fashion. Now, how are these attitudes conveyed? I want to just describe to you quickly seven ways in which legalism, legalistic attitudes are conveyed to the child in the home. One way is by what we call the worm technique. Have you ever seen a worm on a fishing hook? Have you ever done any fishing or you can imagine you put a worm on a hook and it just wiggles? You see, the parent wants the child to shun evil and do good. Is that a fundamental perspective? 
And so when the child does something bad, the parent wants them to do good, shun evil, but when the child does something bad, almost the only thing the parent knows how to do is to make that child feel like a worm, feel bad, feel naughty, dirty, some aspect of that. Condemnation, guilt is poured on. Bad boy, you're a bad boy. No differentiation between the act and the person. You know, what you did was bad. No, no, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're naughty. Naughty girl. And then may come the paralyzing glare, the sermonizing, the tongue lashing, or some combination of those. And then you watch the child begin to writhe, squirm like that worm on that fish hook. Now, the child isn't free from guilt. They are guilty. They did something wrong. The child is not free from the need for repentance. They've got to repent. They've got to acknowledge that they did wrong, and they've got to turn from that. They very much need to understand that they went wrong where they went wrong, and to turn to something better. They need to know that. It's part of the parent's job to help them understand that. But you see, under this technique that we call the worm technique, if there's a change of behavior, if we can get them to change their behavior by making them feel guilty, make them feel like a worm, oh, there may be behavioral change, but it will be for the wrong reasons. It'll be for the wrong reasons. It'll be to simply escape the judgment, escape the anger, escape the condemnation. They'll change, not because they're learning to trust the parent, not because they're learning to obey the parent or to love the truth or to be considerate of others. They're learning to obey simply to escape the judgment, the condemnation. Now there's a second way, another way of conveying legalistic attitudes. This is the habit of blame-pinning. It's all your fault. It's all your fault. You ever watch the basketball game or football game and, you know, the, the, when, when the referee calls a foul? Who does the referee generally call a foul on? The wrong guy. The wrong guy. The second guy, the guy who got caught, he gets all the blame, right? And you watch him and they turn, but, but, did did you, did you see what he did? He hit me first. (laughs) You see, someone has to to be made to see that uh, he is or she is the source of all the trouble. And the fault is often shared, really, isn't it? Faults are often shared. But a game develops where the, where, the, where the blame keeps getting tossed back and forth. I didn't do it, he did. He hit me first, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. But the parent, you know, the parent's exhausted. The parent's got to pin the blame someplace. And so when the game is over, they pin the blame on one person, he gets all the blame, she gets all the blame, and then any genuine sorrow over the wrongdoing that, that anyone might have had for their hurtful behavior, any genuine sorrow would have been dried up by that time because they're so exhausted defending themselves. Another way that we convey uh, this legalistic uh, stuff to our kids is with oughtness pressure oughtness pressure. You ought to have done, you fill in the blank. You ought not to have, you fill in the blank. Now there are things that we ought to do and things that we ought not to do, right? I mean, I ought to pay my bills. I ought not to help myself to somebody else's property. Little Johnny ought not to hit his little sister in the nose. So there are some things that we ought to do not to do. The the point is not whether such oughts exist or whether they should be taught. 
but how one deals with them. That's the point. How does one deal with the oughts, with appropriate behavior, inappropriate behavior? How does one deal with them? And whether at the same time uh, one is instilling in the child the values behind the oughts. Why? Why oughtn't I do that? Well, let me, t- let me explain to you why. Let me explain to you the ramifications. Let me explain to you why God says thus and such. Let me tell you why. I want you to understand the values. Oh, okay. No, we just say, no, you ought not to do that, or you ought to do this, you ought to do that. And that's the end of it. Oughtness pressure. Now the danger comes when life for the child becomes little more than a matter of duty. If we're just saying ought, 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 then life becomes for that child just a matter of duty. Do your duty and you're acceptable. That's what they learn. Do your duty and you're acceptable. Fail and you're not acceptable. And then later on, when the child comes to learn about God, and here's what really gets deadly, later on when that child comes to learn about God, now God becomes little more than the enforcer of oughtness. The omnipresent taskmaster behind the law. Constantly wagging his finger, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. And then, with God viewed that way, there will never be enough love or grace to awaken the faintest genuine desire to do what ought to be done. Because it's just legalism. Another conveyor of non-grace in the home is nagging. This is our favorite one. Now think about this. When you as a parent want to get your child to stop doing something bad or to start doing something desirable, what is your best strategy to use? What typical strategy do most parents fall back on? Nagging. Nagging. All day long. All day long. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? How many times do I have to tell you? How many times do I have to tell you? I've told you again and again, your room looks like a pigsty. Why can't you pick up your clothes? What's the matter with you? And we can just kind of go on and on and on again. You see, the child now, with that constant nagging, the child learns that no matter what he or she does, he will never be good enough to escape the demands, the criticisms, and the sermons. Never be good enough. Never be good enough. You say, well, they don't do anything. You know why? Because the nagging has caused them to build up a defense of stubbornness and insensibility against it all. You think... My gosh, don't you hear me? And you determine to break through that wall of resistance. And you nag them. And they just get stronger and stronger and stronger. And you just think, how can I get them? You don't understand. And then God comes along. God comes along with his list of expectations. His claims, too, now, become dull, negative, nagging irritations. Have you ever noticed your kids just think you're an irritant? Irritating. Well, that's how we look at God. If we've been nagged and nagged and nagged, we build up this wall of resistance. Now God comes along and his, his, his... Will for our life, his requirements to become nagging irritations. And they don't have the slightest power to motivate that child or to renew that child. Grace has effectively been nullified by the heart's automatic reaction to a nagging God. Grace has been nullified, Can't, it won't penetrate. Is unbelief. I don't believe you're a gracious God. I believe you're an old nag up there. I believe you're just going to beat me to death with your nagging, and I'm just going to 
resist you because I can't do it. There's another way of conveying non-grace, and that's the use of various kinds of rejection. Various kinds of rejection as a tool to modify unacceptable behavior. This is important. God bless you. A parent needs to be very, very sensitive to a child's reaction to punishment. Not all children react the same to the same punishment. Many times a parent will give the child the silent treatment. I'll send you a message. I'm just going to be silent. Mommy, mommy. You just ignore them. Daddy, daddy. What's the matter? Nothing. The child is going to what? pick up what? Rejection. Somehow I've missed the mark. Somehow I've fallen short. And now I'm rejected for that. Or you sit him in a corner. Apparently a harmless thing. Everyone does that. Time out. Sit in the corner. Go sit in the corner. Or go to your room. You're unfit for society. Banished. <laughs> now you watch the kids. There are some kids that can hardly wait to get to their room. <laughs> They've figured out a strategy. They figured out a strategy to get you to send them to the room so they can go party. They can hardly wait to get on their computer. Oh, goody, they just romp to get to their room. Oh, oh yes, that's right. I'm sorry. That's the punishment. But then other kids, other kids, you watch them, other kids will slump, feeling rejected. I mean, genuine rejection. So we have to be, as parents, sensitive. Sensitive to how these kids are going to perceive these kinds of what could be categorized rejection punishments. What conveys rejection to one child may convey little or none to another part of knowing your kids, part of being the students of your kids. There's a sixth one. This is deadly. This is the parental perfection mask. This is one all of us struggle with. A lot of us teach our kids legalism by us wearing a mask of perfection. The reality is, is that we don't always acknowledge our own fallibility, our own weakness, and our own failings to our kids. In our dealings with our kids, very often we want to give them the impression we act as if we are perfect. We have it all together. But our kids see through this, don't they? Oh, yeah. They see our lack of consideration. They see our unkindness, they see our rudeness, they see our arrogance. They see these things. And in the long run, this behavior not only undermines in that child confidence in his parents, because the parent purports one thing, but the child sees the opposite in, the, in his parent. So then the effect is it undermines confidence in the parents. I can't trust them, I can't believe them, they're, I can't rely on them because they're inconsistent, really. But then the child may, even beyond that, begin to despise himself. You see, because whenever there's a disagreement, whenever there's a difficulty, whenever there's a misunderstanding, it's not the parent's fault, it's always the fault of the child. He can never do anything right, and so he begins to really just despise himself because the parent is so perfect, they could never do anything wrong. And then he learns to think of himself as no good. Learns to think of himself as inadequate, as the kind of person that is never, ever going to be fully able to earn the love and acceptance of his parents or even other people, certainly not God. And then when he meets God, who really is perfect, he misunderstands God's perfection and finds himself unable even to win God's acceptance. And then further on, the child learns by his parents' example to wear a mask of his own. He learns to pick up his own mask now. Parents have taught him that. 
He learns the best way to deal with his own inadequacies, the best way to deal with his own failures, the best way to deal with him, his weaknesses is simply not to acknowledge them. And he never learns what it means to be a fallible human being living among other fallible human beings. All learning to accept themselves and one another as they really are. Boy, that's freeing, isn't it? When you can kind of let the guard down and experience some measure of acceptance. He never learns that it's safe to acknowledge his faults. He never learns that the the constant renewal, if you will, of openness or the joy and release of confession and forgiveness. No one's ever shown him these things. He didn't learn them at home. You don't learn them in school. (laughs) And then one of the most deadly ways of teaching legalism One of the most deadly ways of teaching legalism is bringing God in to support the parent's authority. Bringing God in to support the parent's authority. The appeal to divine authority. Using God as a threat to compel obedience. How do we do that? God will punish you for that. God knows. He sees everything you do, even when mother isn't around. My mom used to tell me that. She says, I don't always know what you're doing. I don't know. But don't ever forget this. God sees you. Oh, man, that, you talk about impacting my life. That was one of the things that, that, that really helped to drive me away from God. A relationship with him. I believed in God. I never not believed in God, but I, didn't, I was afraid of him in an unhealthy sense. Because I knew I wasn't perfect. I know I did foolishness. And he saw my foolishness. You see, now, the reality is, doesn't the child need to know that God sees everything? And that God is opposed to sin? Yeah. But there could hardly be anything more destructive than imparting that knowledge as a threat. And that's what we'll do. To augment, or as a a kind of a rider to our our rebuke. Just to ensure the fact that the child's going to be... That's the hook. Okay, but I... But God sees you. See, now God, for that child, becomes the, the great threatener, the ultimate legalist, and that was my experience. Beloved, these legalistic influences are also learned from teachers at school. They are learned from our society in general. They're learned from our friends. Bottom line, be good and you're okay. Be bad and you're not okay. You're rejected. And then when the child grows up and gets married, when the initial flush of the glow of the honeymoon wears off after the several months or weeks, however it goes, the passage of time, and the slow discovery of mutual and seemingly ineradicable faults, both husband and wife, gradually return to their legalistic standards. It's all lovely. It's all wonderful during the honeymoon. But then the glow of the honeymoon wears off. And now you see the real person that you married. Hmm. Now begin to be, 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 the, 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 the subtle and not so subtle demands for improvements come, right? You know, you could do to work on some things over here. We need to make some improvements over here. Now we need to improve. But if the communication is you need to make these improvements as the price of acceptance, we're very good at withholding that, aren't we? We have developed all manner of strategies, like with our kids, even in our marriages. So you get these kids that grow up, and they fall back into these same old habits. More and more, they demand certain improvements in each other as the price of acceptance. Then they begin rejecting one another in various ways because of unacceptable behavior or character traits or problems in the relationship. So the habits of a lifetime take control again. They simply take control again, and the cycle of destruction continues. Legalism. 
It's down deep inside of us. You can, you can do something about it in your own life. In your own life. Simply improve your concept of God and rely on His grace, trust in His grace continually, every day. As you begin to experience the transformation of the grace of God in your own life, you're going to be an agent then to pass that on to other people. We'll talk about that next week. Father, thank you again. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that your word does assure us over and over and over that you do love us, that you have a great and marvelous, wonderful, perfect purpose for our life. Lord, you saved us when we were at our worst. It's all by grace. You promised to continue that work in us until we're brought to perfection. You're working in us, Lord. What you want us to do is trust you. Trust you. Help us, Lord, to get our minds around these things. Help us to trust you. Thank you, Father. We love you this morning. Thank you that you first loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's bless the name of our God.